0: Daniel chapter 2, I'm going to begin reading today in verse 24. Scripture says, Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I'll give the king the interpretation. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar had had a dream. Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said to him, I found among the exiles from Judah a man who can tell the king the interpretation. The king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, "'Are you able to tell me the dream that I've seen and its interpretation?' Daniel answered the king, "'No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or diviners can show to the king the mystery that the king is asking. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has disclosed to King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen at the end of days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed were these.' To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be hereafter, and the revealer of mysteries disclosed to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me because of any wisdom that I have more than any other living being, but in order that the interpretation might be known to the king, and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. You were looking, O king, and lo, there was a great statue. This statue was huge, its brilliance extraordinary. It was standing before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of that statue was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked on, a stone was cut out, not by human hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were all broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found." But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, into whose hand he has given human beings, wherever they live, the wild animals of the field and the birds of the air, and whom he has established as a ruler over them all, you are the head of gold. After you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over the whole earth and then there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron just as iron crushes and smashes everything it shall crush and shatter all these as you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron it shall be a divided kingdom but some of the strength of iron shall be in it as you saw the iron mixed with the clay as the toes of the feet were part iron and part clay so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle As you saw the iron mixed with clay, so will they mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall this kingdom be left to another people. It shall crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from the mountain, not by hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold." The great God has informed the king what shall be hereafter. The dream is certain, and its interpretation trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, worshipped Daniel, and commanded that a grain offering and incense be offered to him. The king said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel, gave him many great gifts, and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon." Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. This passage is divisive among scholars. If any of you have done any research on this passage, if you've read any commentaries, you can hardly find two writers who agree. Now, I'm going to try and break down some of what makes this a hard passage to discuss. Some scholars, and you've run into them, some Christians for that matter, they deny the existence of prophecy which foretells the future right from the outset, right? They do not believe that that happens. So for those scholars, Daniel's apparent prescience must be explained in other ways. These scholars begin with the assumption that the relevant parts of Daniel were all written after the events that they appear to predict. So that's one of the ways that they deal with it. Some believe that the five parts of Nebuchadnezzar's statue were five rulers of Babylon. So Nebuchadnezzar and then the rulers that follow after him, each successively less powerful than Nebuchadnezzar himself. Others argue that these are four kingdoms, usually listed as Babylon, Medes, persians and greeks or babylon medo-persia greece and rome for folks who believe who do not believe in future forthtelling, most of them believe that this was written during the greek empire now there are other scholars that believe that god does sometimes foretell the future before it happens and even those folks disagree about the details of this some accept either of the two previous options that we just discussed. Some believe that these kingdoms are the same as those discussed in Daniel's visions later in the book. And a great deal of scholars today, I'd say the lion's share believe that these are all past events that are finished and done well before Jesus comes. But there's a more important question, a more foundational one that has to be addressed before we can even deal with this vision. And it's the question as to why God tells some people in advance what's coming. Why does he do that? Why does God speak to people in visions and in dreams? Why does he send prophets? Now it's important to remember that far more people historically have claimed to speak for God than have actually heard from God or been sent by him to his people. And that's been true throughout the history, not only of Israel, but also the history of the church. And it was apparently true in Babylon. That's what, be- that's what Nebuchadnezzar is messing with here in these early chapters. He doesn't trust any of these people who claim to be prophets to honestly speak for God. And so he's looking for the real deal. And the only way he could imagine, and we talked about this two weeks ago, of finding a real prophet is to not even tell the prophets the dream and make them tell him the dream. That'll weed out the imposters. But still, though there are countless false prophets throughout the history of humanity's time on earth, there are true prophets as well. They're fewer in number, and they're harder to identify, particularly because they tend to annoy us more than encourage us. That's Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Elijah and so on. They're fewer in number, they're more difficult to identify. But there are true prophets, And this was a hope not only of ancient Israel, but of the church too. If you read in Acts carefully, you'll notice there were prophets who predicted famines before they happened. That's in the New Testament. And though there are many more uh, materialistic, secular kind of Christians in the world today who believe all of this stuff ended in the first century, it's still the hope of Christians in every generation that if something is coming, we need to be ready for that God would send a word that we might not be caught unawares. As we consider God's prevenient conversation with King Nebuchadnezzar today, we'll discuss the ways in which prophetic foretelling, and we want to be clear, not all prophecy is of the future. Most prophecy in the Bible is simply applying what God has already said to the moment in which we live. That's most of what prophecy is. It's called forthtelling. But there are moments in which God foretells the future for His purposes, and that's the type we're going to talk about today. We'll discuss the ways in which prophetic foretelling is a test, an explanation, and an opportunity. Let's look at prophetic foretelling as a test. This comes from Daniel 2, verses 26 to 38, but I'm not going to read them all. But I will have you look with me at verse 36. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and to whose hand he has given human beings, wherever they live, the wild animals of the field and the birds of the air, and whom he has established as ruler over them all, you are the head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar is not a nice man. He's a powerful king, most powerful nation at the time, but a brutal people. And a brutal king full of himself we're going to find out in the next chapter he makes an idol out of this dream and makes everybody worship it this is not a good man and yet god tells him that he is the head of gold gold being the most precious metal in this entire statue prophetic foretelling is a test it's a test of everything a person stands for it's a test first of their interpretation how will they hear what god is saying How will they understand what God has said in the past? How will they interpret what God means to say? When God tells someone the future, they tend to hear it in their own way, usually in very self-serving ways. Nebuchadnezzar's gonna fail this test because that's how he hears it. When God brings a word, it must be interpreted. And it's interpreted through who you are. It's interpreted through your character. It's interpreted through your understanding of God's word and whether you have much understanding or very little of it. It's interpreted through your experience in interpreting and applying God's word. It's interpreted through whether or not you've embodied God's word or not. You can have God, this happened with Jesus. Jesus was God in the flesh, speaking to the Pharisees one-on-one and they still thought he was an idiot. They could not understand what he was saying. And the same is true for us. The fact that God has spoken does not mean that anyone has understood. And so the first thing that God's prophecies are is a test for the person who hears them, a test of their interpretation, a test of whether or not they are faithful followers of God, because if they are followers of God, they'll hear what God means to say, but if they are selfish and carnal and fleshly, they'll hear only what their itching ears want to hear, so it's a test of that, and it's also a test of faith. Do we believe God will act in history? Do we believe in a personal God who personally intervenes, or do we not? So when God speaks to us, especially when he speaks about the future to somebody, and these are rare. He does not do this for everybody. There aren't a lot of Daniels in the history of Israel, and there aren't a lot of Nebuchadnezzars either. It's rare, but when he does it, it's a test of what we know, who we are, what we do, and what we believe. The anti-foretelling scholars that I mentioned who don't believe that God, well, I think they don't ultimately believe there even is a God that's involved, because if there is a God that's involved, you imagine he's probably every now and again going to warn his people. But these people tend to think that he never does that in advance. And so those folks, when they hear these prophecies, they hear only what they expect to hear. But what we have to recognize, people of God, is that the Scripture consistently and routinely presents God as forewarning his people about his own future activities in history. It seems to me that a Christian who claims to follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who became flesh in the person of Jesus, must be prepared for God to speak in these ways. To deny it, it seems to me, denies the existence of the God that is proclaimed in Scripture. Prophetic foretelling is first a test. Secondly, it's also an explanation. Let me get that clear. So this is Daniel chapter 2, verses 39 to 45. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I am going to read verse 44 and a few. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall this kingdom be left to another people. It shall crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from the mountain, not by hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has informed the king what shall be hereafter. The dream is certain and its interpretation trustworthy. Here's the principle. God never surprises his people with judgment. Can you imagine a parent who walks into their child's room with no warning and no explanation and just starts slapping them. Good parent? A parent who just walks into the room and takes away something and says, you're not going to use that anymore. And you say, well, why not? Because I said so and just walks out of the room. Good parent? No, of course. Parents, if they intend their children to learn from their discipline, have to explain to their children why they're being disciplined. God never surprises his people with judgment. He always warns his people in advance and explains to them the reason for his discipline, what its extent will be, and God's intended results. Here's a passage. Amos chapter 3, verses 3 through 8. Do two walk together unless they've made an appointment? So he's starting out by saying, people do things deliberately. People don't randomly walk together. They make an appointment if they have a conversation. Do two walk together unless they haven't made an appointment? Does a lion roar in the forest when it has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from its den if it's caught nothing? Does a bird fall into a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster befall a city unless the Lord has done it? Here's verse 7, surely the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. Surely the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? God always sends an explanation with his forewarning, always. And that's what prophets are for. And we then must test the spirits when someone claims to speak to us on God's behalf, claims to have a word from the Lord. We must test those spirits. We're supposed to test them by the scriptures, by the words God has spoken in the past, by the spirit that accompanies them, perhaps by the character of the individual speaking. Whether or not what's being said is consistent with things God has said and done in the past or whether it sounds brand new and like nothing we've ever heard of before. This is how we test the spirits. But when God does speak, the prophets will testify. They can do no other because God always intends when judgment comes to explain to his people why it is coming. And Those are the hardest conversations to endure because none of us want to know But God will explain to us but here's the hope when God foretells the future it's also an opportunity it's not vindictive it's not to make you look stupid it's not to expose your wickedness and make you feel foolish there is a purpose for God speaking to us and we see this in Daniel chapter 2 verses 46 through 49 Nebuchadnezzar kind of gets why he's been spoken to. He doesn't do a perfect turn to God, but he does about as good a one as Nebuchadnezzar could be expected to do at this point. Verse 46 says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, worshiped Daniel. That's, That's the wrong thing to do. But he's a pagan. It's about as close as he could get. And commanded that a grain offering and incense be offered to him. We don't know what Daniel said to that, but I'm pretty sure Daniel probably slapped it away, but we're not told that. The king said to Daniel, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you've been able to reveal this mystery. God's intention in telling us what's coming is that we might repent, that we might turn from our wickedness, that we might receive his correction and accept its justice and its rightness and through the course of being disciplined that we might allow him to purge us of the evils that led us into this space of discipline and turn back from those things that we might have a different future than we had a past. That's the purpose of talking to us in advance, to give us a chance, to give us hope. The gospel of Jesus is essentially a prophetic oracle It's a prediction, really, of the future. Jesus comes to predict the future before he comes to bring the future. Jesus comes to predict the future before he comes to bring the future. And he does that so we have a chance. Because if he simply brought the kingdom the day he first came, none of us would have survived it. He came to a world of sinners. Even his own people had failed to understand their own law. And if he had come in judgment the first time, none would have been left. But that's not the heart of God. So Jesus comes to warn us, to prepare us, to save us, that when dusk falls, we might see the coming of the kingdom of God, and not judgment. That's the period in which we've been living for two thousand years. The gospel essentially is a prophetic oracle of God's judgment, but it's also an opportunity. Some of you remember this. You can find it in Matthew chapter four, verse seventeen. Everywhere Jesus went, he preached the same sermon. Everywhere he went, the scriptures say. His sermon began with the same words. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. You're all going the wrong way. Turn around. Jesus did not come to condemn us. He didn't come the first time to condemn us. He didn't come the first time to bring judgment. He came the first time to warn us. To bring the opportunity of repentance to the people of the earth, to demonstrate in his own flesh what it looks like to be a child made in the image of God, to live through his own flesh what it looks like to have faith in the Father, and then to die for us and to rise from the dead ahead of us that we might have hope in a future. And as long as God delays the second coming of Jesus, we are in that space of mercy carved out by the cross of Christ. And he will come to judge. That's the second coming, but not the first time. That's not why he came. What he means is that he came to proclaim the future that we might turn before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, the day of judgment, falls on us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, this is of course Paul saying that he thought of Jesus as just a human prophet and now he doesn't think that way anymore about him. Verse 17, so if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation, everything old has passed away, see everything has become new. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So what he's saying there is that when Jesus came, he came to bring humanity back into right relationship with God before the day of the Lord comes. That's why he came. And then he entrusted that mission to his church that they would come and bring reconciliation to the people during this long period in which we are waiting the coming of Jesus. The longer he waits, the more mercy, but the more opportunity for wickedness to prosper. This is the tension of where we are living. And Paul says that that ministry that was Jesus' ministry to call the earth back to himself before the day of judgment is now our ministry. That's what he's saying. Verse 20. So we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. We entreat you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As we work together with him, we urge you also not to accept the grace of God in vain. For he says, at an acceptable time, I've listened to you. And on a day of salvation, I have helped you. See, now is the acceptable time. See, now is the day of salvation. The period between Jesus' ascension and his second coming is the day of salvation. It is the day in which we have a chance to turn from our sins, to bring them to God. That's the season in which we live has been for thousands of years. But when God brings judgment in the midst of that day or judgment at the end of days, he sends prophets. God sends prophets not for our encouragement, but for our salvation. For our repentance. The prophet is the one that God puts in the room to explain to the people why they're going to be punished and how they're going to be punished and what the punishment is for and how long it will last and what God hopes to achieve through this discipline. That's why they come and that's why it's a terrible call. You should never wish to be one because the people will hate you. That hate comes at everyone who dares prepare God's people for his discipline. So when God sends prophets, he does it before judgment. He does it to test who we are, what we believe. And he does it to explain to us why it's coming. And he does it to give us a hope that if we can lean into his discipline and receive it and learn what we must, then there's hope on the other side and life. So Daniel told us what Nebuchadnezzar's dream meant. So here's how I understand it. The statue had different metals, right? The head of gold, the arms and sort of torso of silver, the loins of bronze, the legs of iron, and the feet mixed with iron and clay. I think this is the same vision as will come later in in the book of Daniel but the next one is given to Daniel himself with greater explanation. This one is given only to Nebuchadnezzar. These are the kingdoms of the earth, all that was left of the kingdoms of the earth till the kingdom of God came. And there weren't that many kingdoms left. The head of gold seems to have been Babylon. The silver seems to be the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. The bronze seems to be the kingdom of Greece. And the iron is Rome. Rome is the final beast in Daniel. That leads a lot of people to think, well, we're obviously past Daniel because Rome is gone. I mean, it lasted a long time, but it fell. But it's interesting the way that God gives this dream to Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel interprets it is that Rome has two parts it has the legs of iron that are pure iron, and then it has those feet mixed with clay and iron. And it's the feet that get struck with the rock that sets up a kingdom that will never end. It's very interesting. And if you think about the history of the Roman Empire, it begins like those legs of iron. It crushes everybody. It defeats the Greeks. It's a powerful empire. But as you know your history, it eventually crumbles, right? Rome falls. But Rome is still with us in a very interesting way. First, the Roman Catholic Church, of course, just continued some of the practices of Rome and spread it through Europe. The kingdoms of Europe are the fractured pieces of the Roman Empire. That's where Rome sat, and those kingdoms have been very powerful. They took over the whole world at a period of time not too long ago that we're being reminded of constantly today as people are tearing down statues, right? Colonialism and all of that. So Europe still remains roman but it has this weird allegiance with lesser nations that are not roman and it's held together not so much by a a government or a single authority but by an ideology the roman way is still with us their ideology still lives that's what the renaissance was in 1500s in europe it was a rebirth of the roman and greek philosophies And those philosophies have penetrated the entire earth to this point. I think that's what he means by the feet of clay mixed with iron. And they're strong, but it's still the last kingdom. That's the kingdom that the stone will hit. And the kingdom that never ends will be established. It's an interesting story. Now, that doesn't tell us at all when the day, the final day will be, but it does tell us one thing. We are in the last kingdom that will ever stand. We are in it. We are in the fractured pieces of the Roman Empire held together with the potter's clay, infused with Christianity and pagan religions and Roman ideologies and spread out in authority all over Europe. We're still there. There'll be no other kingdom, according to Daniel. So that's how I read it. Now, the question for us as we conclude today is why would God want Nebuchadnezzar to know that? And why does he want us to know it? Well, it's good to know where you stand. And it's good to know that whatever kingdom there is on the earth, do you notice what kingdom is not on the earth? The kingdom of God does not come till all the other kingdoms fell. So no kingdom of the earth today is God's kingdom on earth. But he also wants Nebuchadnezzar to know that he's not going to last forever. That his legacy will not reign for all time. It's a test of his humility. But it's also important for you and I to know that we live In the last kingdom of the earth. Now, that doesn't tell us when Jesus is going to come, but he does tell us another kingdom will not rise before he does. That's important for us to know. If we're looking at the timeline of history, God's patience and mercy is so incredibly long that we could not possibly know when it will run out. But when he comes, that'll be the end of his mercy. We've passed through from Daniel's day through that whole statue. We've gone from the head and the arms and the torso and the legs. That Rome fell and we are in the feet. So we are near the end. So what does that mean for the church? We must be ambassadors of this kingdom. The idols must go. No idols, no idols in our homes. We must be pure because we are the ambassadors of the kingdom. We are a holy people. God called us when we were unfaithful, but He didn't call us to remain unfaithful. He called us to be holy that we might bear the light of Christ to a dark world, and the world needs you now more than it ever has. Do not despair like the world. Do not hoard your resources. Do not hold your hurts. Do not bear unforgiveness in your hearts. People of God, release these things. The world needs you. And there's nothing worse than a selfish believer who hoards the good news of the gospel to themselves and keeps it among their friends and family and is afraid to reach out and gather the harvest. And this is the challenge for us today. God told Nebuchadnezzar what was coming to test him. And I believe he's been telling us what's coming to test us. And I think he's explained to us why we're being judged. I think he's told us what we need to release. And I think now he's challenging us to learn from his discipline. Rumah, it's overripe. The fruit is rotting. The people of God are letting the produce of God go to the birds and the animals of the field. Trust him in this and we will see a harvest.